Good morning, Terra family. We are rounding out our, or coming near to the end, I should say, of our series in the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. Uh, next week will be our final week, and, uh, and then after that, we will head into the season of, of Advent, a season in which we're anticipating, trying to anticipate, like the Israelites and their long time of waiting for the coming Messiah. And as I was thinking about where we're ending next week in Ruth chapter 4, the very end of that book does just that. It's all about anticipating uh, that Obed, who will be born to Ruth and Boaz, is in fact uh, a forefather of David's, who is in fact a forefather of Christ, the ultimate king. And so we're always waiting, always waiting in hindsight and always waiting as we look ahead for Christ's return and for the restoration of all things which we'll be talking about uh, today as we get back into Ruth. Uh, Before we do that, I want to kind of talk a little bit about something that I've gleaned over these last several weeks in Ruth, um, and that is the artistry of the author of this book, who's unknown. We don't know who it is, um, but the more I've spent time in Ruth, the more I've seen these beautifully artistic, poetic, patterned themes surface. So, for example beginning of chapter 1, we saw that there was a famine. And by the end of chapter 1, we saw that there was a harvest to be expected. So things started off bleak, um, and then by the end, we see hope uh, surface within this story in the form of a harvest, God's favor returning to Israel. There are so many of these. We see at the end of uh, the beginning of chapter 2, Ruth is so vulnerable as she heads out into these fields Uh, And by the end of that chapter, through Boaz, she's protected. We see that at the end of chapter 1, Naomi comes home expressing her sense of emptiness. And we see that by the end of our chapter today, and especially next week in chapter 4, that she is made full again. We see Naomi's lament at the end of chapter 1. And yet at the end of chapter 2, we see she's rejoicing in the Lord whose kindness, she says, has not forsaken the living or the dead. We see Ruth and Naomi, both childless at the beginning of the story, and by the end, uh, Ruth is with child and has an offspring. Today, we're going to be talking about this theme of rest that bookends chapter 3. And so again and again, these beautifully artistic patterns are woven throughout this story without taking anything away from the real historical facts and details of the story, but the author imposes, in a beautiful way, their own artistry upon the story to to make those themes pop out even more, to tell us and teach us deep theological and profound truths about God through this story of Ruth. And I bring all that up to point that out in general for your own enjoyment and amazement and worship as you enter into God's Word through Ruth, but also because it just seemed like one of these times that would be um, helpful to bring into view this tension as Christians we live in with this book, the Bible, which is this tension of the divine inspiration of this book and the fact that at the same time, it's humanly authored, right? It's, it's a tension that we live with and, and can kind of swing sometimes to one end of the pendulum or the other, and that can kind of affect our approach to God and life as disciples. But we know both are true. 2 Timothy 3.16 teaches us all scripture, it says, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So many places throughout the Psalms for additional examples The psalmists declare the perfection of this word from God. Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. 
So we are told again and again by God through his word we can trust this book that is divinely inspired by, by him. And yet at the same time we read passages like 2 Peter 1 that tells us, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So in that verse you see the tension of both. That this book was divinely inspired but was written through normal, ordinary people. Man. And so therein lies the tension. You've got this book that's authored by flawed men who were flawlessly inspired. Not in spite of themselves, but through their humanness, through their gifts, their talents, their experiences, the cultural backgrounds that they came from. And here's the thing. If we overemphasize one over the other, problems can start to arise in our discipleship of following after Jesus. If we overemphasize, for example, the human authorship of the Bible, then it gets to the place where we can't trust the scriptures, where we struggle to know, well, what can we trust and what was just of man? And then we can start to allow our own compass of right and wrong to dictate which is which. On the other hand, if we overemphasize the divine inspiration of the Bible, then we can start to believe God works in spite of us. He's just doing his own thing rather than through us. But I actually think it's the latter that God works through, flaw, through flawed human beings that's more glorifying to him in all of his sovereignty and goodness that he perfectly can fulfill his plans, whether it's writing this Bible or his plans through your life, through flawed people. And so we seek to hold both of these things in tension. And the Bible is such a perfect uh, symbolic example of that tension of God's sovereignty and his divine inspiration and yet that he works through flawed human beings. You've got 66 different books within this book that have been compiled together, written by around 40 different authors. And what you see is they come from diverse backgrounds, times, places, gifts, and styles. And yet there's an incredible continuity of theme and of theology from start to finish. Divine inspiration. This is an amazing book from an amazing God and a gift to us. And so we have to keep that in mind. When we do, it changes how we enter into reading God's Word. Today we're going to be looking at one of those poetically arranged themes in chapter 3. We're just looking at the last five verses in particular, verses 14 through 18, if you want to turn there now. But we'll keep in view the whole chapter because there's especially a verse at the beginning, chapter 3, verse 1, that will help us to see the bookend theme of rest here today and what God wants to teach us about rest. So our, our big idea is Matthew, uh, as, as Matt alluded to earlier, is that love is restorative. Love is restorative. And so let's read uh, Ruth chapter 3, verses 14 to 18. You'll find that on page 264 of the blue hardback ESV Bibles in the pews, and it should be on the screen behind me as well. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? So she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, that is Boaz, let it not be known that the woman came to the, thresh, the threshing floor. And he said, bring out the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. 
And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Lord, we pray that these words, written by a human author who you nonetheless divinely inspire, you would use to open the eyes of our heart to see new things grounded in ancient truths about you today. We pray this by the power of your Holy Spirit and in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. I want to speak to the connection here between love and rest um, through three different movements today in this message. First of all, I think we need to spend a little bit of time just talking about what is meant by rest because it's probably a bit different than we would think commonly in our culture or even individually relative to what the Bible means by this idea of rest. So what is meant by rest, first off? Secondly, we're going to take a look at how love, one of the ways in which it manifests itself, is by working for the rest of others. We see that through Boaz and Naomi in particular in our passage today. And then thirdly, we're going to talk about how rest comes to us through working and waiting. Now, there'll be a shift from how we love others through working for their rest to as pilgrims on this journey following Jesus, how do we acquire rest ourselves? And it's both through working and waiting, and so I'll unpack that. We see that in particular in Ruth's own journey here. So first of all, what's meant by rest? Sometimes it's best to answer, try and answer what something is by what it's not necessarily. So rest isn't necessarily, and this is kind of my own daydream of what quintessential rest would be like for me if I could just acquire it. It's not necessarily, uh, you know, this calm, peaceful, quiet place that I find. Maybe for you it's the beach. For me it'd probably be the mountains or the woods somewhere uh, where I'm swinging back and forth in a hammock on a 65-degree day with a little bit of a breeze. No bugs, no bugs, okay? No mosquitoes that would just ruin my rest. With a good book in hand that I can read uninterrupted for hours on end, that right there is a good day of rest for me. Anyone else? (laughs) Now, when I achieve that, which at least within the last 10 years has been a very rare occurrence, it is truly restful. I'm not saying that that is not an example of what rest can be or something that can be restorative. The problem is when that's my expectation, I need that in order to experience rest, then 99% of the time, I'm just frustrated and irritable with those who are around me because that is so elusive for me. The problem with the scenario that I just painted a picture of is that it's too narrow. Biblical rest is about so much more than the picture I just painted, than our perfect first scenario we feel like we need in order to be able to enter into rest. So let's try to define a better understanding of rest here from what we understand from the whole counsel of God's Word in Scripture. From Scripture, I think, if we distill it down, we could say that rest is entering into the experience of life as God intended it to be. 
Think even restoration. They're not the same, but they are very much connected. If we talk about what restoration is and should be and is to us, it's rest that it's achieved when things are restored the way that they are meant to be. Restoration. I, my, my uncle a couple of years ago, great, no, my uncle, our kid's great uncle, took an old fire engine, uh, pedal fire engine, like a pedal car. Uh, it must have been from the 50s or 60s, all metal. Every time I had to move that thing around, it was like a workout. Um, and it, was, it had been kind of peeling paint, rust. Well, he took it and he beautifully restored it. Paint, got all the rust off, did the decals over again, um, lubricated that thing up. Everett and Dahlia have so enjoyed it. Restoration. It's an example of an object, but it was brought back to the way that it was meant to be in function in its original form. It's the idea of rest. It's a recalibration of our hearts to value and love the things that God loves. Because when we do that, we experience wholeness and fullness in the way that God intended for us to. Isn't this what God has been at work to restore, by the way, since the fall? It certainly is what Adam and Eve had before sin entered the world, where they knew perfect rest because they knew perfect life as God intended and designed for it to be. They knew intimacy with God. They had a wholeness of mind and body all of the time. They never went hungry. They never went without a home. They never went without fulfilling human companionship with others. There was peace between God and man, and there was peace between man and man. All right? between Adam and Eve. And so rest, a new perfect rest. In fact, to give you an idea of how rest means more than just kind of that quintessential swaying in the, in the hammock, the word for rest that's used of Boaz here where it says, where Naomi says he won't rest until he's settled this matter is used in the book of Judges just before Ruth. Ruth takes place during the time of Judges on multiple occasions to refer to peace at large in the land, meaning no enemies are attacking from without and there's no division from within. That's the way things were designed to be. In the garden, there was perfect unity. Feels apt to bring up Augustine's uh, popularly attributed quote where he says that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, in a person. So the idea of rest is bigger than a Sunday afternoon nap as much as I like that, and it can bring rest. It's about a restoration of our hearts and our minds to faith in and a love for the one who gives us rest and a love for him in all of his ways. It's a bigger picture idea of rest. Now the thing is, any of the things that I've just mentioned, that you know, peace or unity or intimacy with intimacy with God or unity between uh, people, all of those things take work. We have to work for that kind of rest. We have to be intentional to put ourselves in, in, in others in a position to experience that kind of rest. The work of restoration involves being intentional, being consistent and persevering in what we know to be true and right, and then rest will follow. Maybe the most common form of rest that Christians will think of, understandably, is that of a Sabbath or a day off, a day in which you are not working. 
It's a day to recalibrate your heart and your mind on the things that will bring restoration. But what is it that even puts you in a position to take a Sabbath or a day off? You work hard throughout the week up until that point. And yes, there will always be things left to do. You never get to a day off and feel like I've accomplished everything. But you do what you can, you work, and then you trust that God will provide for what yet needs to be done. Trusting that God's going to honor your desire to put yourself in the position to cease from work and to receive the rest that he wants to bring to your soul. I just give that as, as an illustration, as one example of the idea that there is a relationship between work on the one hand and restoration on the other. We can segregate, segregate those two things in a way that I think is actually un, unhealthy. But we work hard so that we can rest well. And again, by resting, we mean entering into the abundant life that God has desired for and designed us for. Because when we do, we enter into, we, we flourish as people in mind and in body and relationships and in every other facet of life. So that's the broader idea of rest that I want you to have in mind as we think about uh, our passage today. And as we move into talking about this idea that love works for the rest of others. We see this today in our passage with Naomi and Boaz, but even before we talk about them, this idea, this pattern of working for the rest of others has existed since the beginning of time. It was patterned in creation where God worked for six days to create. Then he rested, by the way, but through his work of creation, he made it possible for his creation, including you and I, to experience life and life to the full. His work made it possible for us to experience life in all of its fullness. That abundant life was lost as a result of sin, which led to brokenness in our world. But then we see this pattern again of love working for the rest of others in the incarnation, which is where Jesus left heaven, he left perfect peace and perfect rest to enter into our world to redeem us, to buy us back from the consequences of sin and to buy us back to himself, to abundant life and to eternal life with all fullness of life and joy. Jesus worked for your and my redemption and for our freedom. You just read the Gospels and it's, you're exhausted for his sake by the time you've done. We're told he had nowhere to rest his head. We see him all the time up early in the morning and late at night interceding in prayer for others. He would continue to receive people and minister to them even when his disciples were trying to draw the line and, and cut it off. He endured people's scorn and ridicule and persevered in his mission he labored to persevere in obedience in the garden when he was like, Lord, if there's any way for this cup of suffering going to the cross to pass from me, may it be yet nevertheless your will, not mine, be done. He labored to persevere in obedience. He endured suffering on the cross. Jesus worked for your and my rest so that we could rest. Love works for the rest of others. And we see that here in play in our passage as well with Naomi and then with Boaz. So first, Naomi. Do you remember back in chapter 1, perhaps, when at this turning point where she's 
deciding that she needs to go back to Bethlehem. Ruth and Orpah, her two daughters-in-law, were going to come with her, and she's pleading with them to go back, and she prays a beautiful prayer over them. She says in verse 9 of chapter 1, The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. So she prays rest over them, that the Lord would grant them rest. How does she think God's going to do that? By going back to Moab, by going amongst their own people and marrying and having a family there. So she's praying, God, give them rest. I want rest for them. Well, here in chapter 3, verse 1, Naomi is actually the answer of her own prayer as she begins herself to work for the rest for Ruth that she had prayed for back in chapter 1. And she does this. She works for Ruth's rest by coming up with a plan that ultimately will fulfill this desire, this good desire that Ruth had for family and a husband. She says in chapter 3, verse 1, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Naomi saw something that was out of place in her daughter-in-law's life. She, She saw this young, eligible woman, godly woman, who was longing for a husband and a family, and she decided to do something about it. She was working for Ruth's rest. I think that when you understand that this is what you're doing, when you come along someone else, alongside somebody else who's suffering and who's burdened, that can be significant to you. That when you come alongside those who are experiencing broken relationships and broken bodies and a broken heart and broken circumstances and things are out of order and not the way that God intended them to be, that when you help, what you are doing is you are working for their rest for the restoration of the way God intended and designed things to be before the fall so that they can flourish as the image bearers he's made them as. That can be transformative when it comes to your service to others and love of others. Now, can people flourish amidst brokenness? If there's brokenness that remains in your life and in the circumstances around you, is it possible that we can flourish? The answer is yes. Thanks be to God by his grace. Paul from prison who, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul's story, had suffered a lot more than just prison up until this point in time in his life, could say in his letter to, actually, I'm forgetting right now, it's either the Philippians or, help me out. He's talking about being in prison, and he's talking about how I have learned the secret of being content in in any and every circumstance. This is also where the famous often quoted verse in the end, after a touchdown's been scored in the end zone is quoted, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul was referencing the fact that amidst all these circumstances that could lead him otherwise to be discontent, he had found contentment through Christ. Because there is a reality in which God does allow for circumstances in our life in his sovereignty to be there in order to bring about the rest that would not otherwise come. It's been a while since we've been in Ruth chapter 1, but I wonder if we remember that it was in fact a famine and the loss of Ruth and Naomi's loved ones that even led them to the point that they're at now. And that if we're careful readers, we understand that the narrator of this story, the author, was trying to say God was sovereign over those things. And apart from those things, Ruth and Naomi very well may never have entered into the rest that God had desired and designed for them. 
but does God sometimes allow for circumstances to remain that don't reflect the perfection and fullness of life prior to sin in the world? Yes. But does he leave us alone in the midst of those, even when they can't be resolved? No. He says to Paul, he said to Paul, spoke to him in that same passage, my grace, Paul, is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Speaking of those broken circumstances that Paul found himself in so many times. That said, if you are a follower of Christ here today, you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. You are an agent of change. You are an ambassador for his kingdom where all things will be made new and right. So insofar as you are in a position to bring about restoration in the world, you should. And then where we can't do anything, we trust God in his sovereignty and goodness will provide the sufficient grace that we need to persevere for ourselves and for those we love. What were we talking about? Naomi. Naomi as this agent of love through providing rest for Ruth, initiating this whole process, working for her rest. Now let's take a look at Boaz. Boaz is the other key figure in our passage here who is seen loving others by working for their rest. First, he works for Naomi's rest, then he works for Ruth's rest. In our scene here today that we've just read, he fills this extra garment that Ruth has brought along uh, with six measures of barley, sends her home with that for Naomi. And at first, we see this as a way to perhaps honor and preserve the integrity of Ruth here. Um, In the case that anybody would see her leaving early, Uh, in that morning, it would appear potentially scandalous. So if she had provisions, then it would be understood that she was coming for provisions and going home. And certainly that is probably a part of the case. But what's clearly intended here by Boaz is what we read when Ruth returns home to Naomi in verse 17. And she says to Naomi, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Why? because he wanted Naomi to to know he had heard her laments when she first came back to Bethlehem about feeling empty and that he was at work to see her restored. That's what he was saying to her here. Symbolically, this practical gesture of sending Ruth home with this barley to Naomi was to show he was at work to bring about her redemption, that he would marry Ruth, if at all possible, and redeem Naomi's family line and her land. He was at work to make Naomi full again. He was working for Naomi's rest. And this bolsters Naomi's confidence in what God is doing, which was already high. She says in response to Ruth after she hears this, wait, my daughter, until you learn how this matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. I love her utter confidence here. If she wasn't even in that situation with Ruth and Boaz, but she's so confident he's going to see this through today. And her confidence isn't just in Boaz and in his character to do this. It's in God. See, Naomi has been paying attention from the beginning of this story. And every opportunity that we've seen her have the chance to, she's begun to credit God for the circumstances that are unfolding. And when you're paying attention to the circumstances of your life, 
through that lens of God being in charge, and you give him praise and celebrate the things that you see unfolding around you as being from him, you start to begin to anticipate when it's him at work and how he is working. We call this at Terra sometimes reflective revelation. When you look in hindsight and you see this pattern of what's happening and you just realize this is what God is doing. And sometimes it even prepares you for what lies ahead. For Naomi, her journey had begun with realizing God had restored favor to, her, to his people back in Bethlehem. So she goes, though empty, except for Ruth, of course. She says, I come back empty. Ruth's right by her side. She's not seeing her at that point. But I think Naomi, Naomi began to see over time Ruth was, in fact, a part of God's provision for her in the midst of her own lament and sadness. And then she sees Ruth go out to glean at great risk, given her background, coming from a, a foreign nation, being a young woman. And she just happens to end up in Boaz's field, who happens to be one of Naomi's kinsmen redeemers. He also happens to be very godly and generous, and he makes provision for Naomi and for Ruth. Naomi sees God's hand in this. He sees his grace, his hand of provision. So her confidence is growing. And so now, in the beginning of chapter 3, she devises this risky plan for, for Ruth to, to give Boaz every opportunity to be the redeemer he could be. And he reciprocates Ruth's proposal, offering this gesture of barley to Naomi, symbolizing he has every intent to ensure that her emptiness is turned to fullness. She, her confidence is just skyrocketing. It's growing. It's like hitting close to the 100% meter of confidence. I know, I know this will probably date me, but anybody remember back to the early 90s when NBA GM first came out? And in that game, if you make enough shots in a row, like this meter goes up of your likelihood to make the next shot. And you hit like this on-fire mode where you cannot be denied and you can start chucking stuff up from beyond the half-court line and you know it's going in. This is where Naomi is at. As she tells Ruth, you just wait. He's going to settle this matter today. She's been tracking with what God is doing, and such is her confidence. She just knows where this is going. It doesn't always work that way with us. But when we pay attention, there are times where we can move forward in confidence. Yep, this is God. Watch him work. That's where she's at. So Boaz has been working for Naomi's rest. He's also working for Ruth's rest. We haven't spent a ton of time here. We got into some of this last week, but th this was a true love story. This wasn't a transactional thing. If we read the beautiful, subtle um, literary comments that this narrator is making throughout and understand the culture and the times, there was a love story that was blossoming here. Boaz was in love with Ruth, and his mission now was to marry her, and he would stop at nothing uh, to pursue this until he either succeeded or did all that he possibly could to succeed. And by the way, he's pretty shrewd in how he goes about that. And we'll probably dig into a little bit, about, uh, a little bit of that next week, the strategy that he employs um, to try to ensure that he marries Ruth uh, when he goes to the guy who's ahead of him in line as a kinsman redeemer. But what I want you to see here today is that Boaz will not rest until he's secured rest for Ruth. And I want to point out a couple of things here devotionally this morning. First of all, Boaz's relentlessness to pursue rest for Ruth implies a cost to himself. All right, it's implied rather than explicit. But when we work for the rest of others, it will oftentimes come at a cost to us, right? 
if that's, in, if that's the case for you, you are in good company because that's the pattern of Christ pursuing rest for his bride, the church, because it came at the ultimate cost for him. That's precisely what makes this work of pursuing rest out of love for others so powerful is when it comes at a cost. Because when it does, God's glory shines all the more brightly through this kind of love because it points to the gospel love of what Jesus did in working for your and my rest and our restoration. I also want to point out that there was no guarantee that this was going to work out. Naomi was confident. Ruth only jumped into this equation partway through the story. He's proceeding in faith here. He's not sure of the outcome. Undoubtedly, there's some fear and trepidation that he is moving forward with as he approaches this kinsman redeemer who is nearer than he was to Naomi. But, hear this, just his pursuit of rest on Ruth's behalf would still have been meaningful to her. When you're on the receiving end of this kind of love, there's a rest that comes, a measure of rest that comes just from knowing that somebody else is advocating on your behalf. Is there not? Even if what is hoped for doesn't come to pass. It's a blessing just to know that somebody else is spending themselves on your behalf to try to bring resolution or relief to a painful and broken situation in your life. And you feel loved. Sometimes for people, there's greater power, or great power anyway, just in the knowledge of knowing that somebody else cares, that they're fighting for you, that they're laboring for you and that you're not alone, even if what they're fighting for on your behalf doesn't come, become fully realized. I wonder if you've ever been in that situation yourself before. If you have, and you know how meaningful that's been to you, recognize that faithfulness in your love of others seeking their rest isn't dependent upon the fruit that you or they would like to see. Just fight for them. So we see a beautiful picture of what it means to work for rest, the rest of others in Boaz as he works for Naomi and Ruth's rest. And then finally, I want to take our few remaining minutes and shift our focus from working for the rest of others to this idea that rest comes as pilgrims journeying, following after Jesus, both by working for it and by having to wait for it. Ruth shows us this. She's been working for the rest of Naomi all this time, and now she's in a different position where others are working for her rest, but she also shows us that she's working for her rest, and then she's also showing us that she can't, that there's this point at which certain kinds of rest only come through waiting, that you're at the mercy of somebody else to acquire that rest for you. So I want to shift our focus here from seeking rest for others to seeking rest for ourselves. In other words, answering the question, how do we best position ourselves for the restoration that God intends for our lives? Notice back in chapter 3, verse 1, Naomi lays out this plan for Ruth for her to acquire rest. Naomi's fighting for Ruth's rest. She's the one that comes up with this plan. However, part of her plan involves Ruth taking action. And Ruth takes some big risks to position herself to receive the rest that is hoped for. Earlier today, we talked a little about what is rest in general. There is a real sense we talked about in which it's something that has to be worked for. We talked about how working hard during the week allows you to be able to truly enter into rest on a Sabbath day or a day off. You could also look at the pattern you see in exercising discipline to prioritize the important things in life that will bring restoration. 
you know, classic but important examples of just being with God and His Word and praying and surrounding yourself by friends who are truly going to challenge you and encourage you. There's a pattern of discipline and intentionality and even sacrifice to position yourself to receive rest. I thought of Psalm 23 and how encouraging and uplifting of a psalm this is. You just kind of fall into the arms of God. It starts out, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Certainly the Lord is the only one who restores. But it sounds like God is doing it all here. But for your souls to be restored as a disciple, a follower of Christ, as a sheep, you actually have to be willing to follow the shepherd. That's hard work sometimes, to persevere in following after our great shepherd. But on the other hand, there is this other reality, a tension at work here. Because some forms of rest we can never acquire on our own and weren't meant to. Some rest we have to wait for, and there's nothing you or I can do to obtain it. In chapter 3, verse 18, Naomi instructs Ruth to wait for rest, as opposed to her earlier command to take action for it. It's now in Boaz's hands. And he is working restlessly for Ruth's rest. There are times, in other words, to take action, and then there are times that we just have to wait as followers of Christ. The primary call on your and my life is faithfulness. Sometimes faithfulness looks like taking action, exercising courage. And sometimes that means waiting. And by the way, waiting can sometimes take courage, especially for those who are so eager to bring about changes in your circumstances, right? So this is a case here in, in verse 18 in which we see Ruth can do nothing now but wait. It's not in her hands anymore. But she does this with confidence that Boaz won't rest until he's settled the matter of securing her redemption. This story is, yes, a picture of Ruth needing to wait, but it's also about something much bigger than just her story. It's a picture of the status of every human being who's ever lived who truly desires ultimate rest. Because true restoration is not something that we can secure for ourselves. It's only something that Christ can secure for us as the ultimate redeemer who laid down his life for us for the redemption of our sins. So let me try to put this all together for us now as we come to a close because there are some tensions that are difficult to understand between these different ideas. We started off today talking about working for the rest of others, like Naomi, like Boaz. Because when we work for the rest of others, we become these living metaphors of Christ's work of redemption in this world. We showcase that to the world. We're practically hands and feet at that point for Jesus. Then we talked about Ruth as a participant in obtaining this rest, which is like our journey as disciples following after Jesus. Discipleship involves striving to enter God's rest through pursuing those things that are going to put you in a position to receive it, to receive and experience life the way God intended for it to be. And then finally, we talked about Ruth coming to the point where all she could do was wait. Nothing more that she could do. And this is actually what gets to the heart of the gospel, which is the belief that all true rest, especially the eternal life, 
God offers us is a gift that we cannot earn, but only comes through the redemptive work of Christ in our life. When I talked about those different threads of rest and work today, I kind of did it in reverse order to what probably makes the most sense to those of us who are familiar with this um, uh, journey of salvation and then discipleship of following after Jesus. So let me put that in reverse order and see if this resonates for you now. I'll say the same thing, but in the reverse order. First off, we start as sinners who've been cut off from life the way God intended it to be. The world's broken. We've broken it because of our sin. We're helpless to do anything about it ourselves. So the first thing is we wait for the rest that only Christ can provide. Only Jesus, through his work on the cross, can redeem and restore sinners. Our part is faith, believing on him for salvation. It's like you're drowning in an ocean and somebody throws you a life preserver and you grab onto it. You don't consider that a work. That's a belief that that this thing can save you, that this person can save you. That's where this journey begins. That's the posture of waiting. I can do nothing to enter into this rest. Only Jesus can secure it for me. Secondly, we strive as Christians who've been saved to enter that rest that discipleship requires. And when we do this, we're not earning God's favor and then he gives us rest as a result, but we're working hard to put ourselves in a position to receive the daily rest that God has secured for us through Christ. And then thirdly, from the outflow of the own, our own rest that we're experiencing, we work for the rest of others as Christ's representatives. Our lives, when we meet Jesus and we strive for this rest, begin to change by virtue of the restoration God is doing in our lives and his power in our lives. And we don't keep that to ourselves, but we become Christ's hands and feet, seeking to secure rest for others so that they too can taste life in Christ's kingdom. All three of these things are here in our passage today. Do you see it? We're going to celebrate communion now, and we're going to see, as we do, all three of these truths are on display and pictured in the act of taking communion every week here at church. As you come forward, you're doing so not as a work that is required on your part in order to secure salvation, but as an act of faith that Jesus is suffering on your behalf is what it made it possible for you to experience life the way God intended for it to be, starting now, here in this life, and then on into eternity forever. That's what you're doing when you come forward. You're not saying, I'm doing this so that God will love me. I'm doing this because God loved me. I love because he first loved me. Then, as disciples who are called to strive to enter the rest that Christ secured for us, we do this intentionally every week. We're disciplined at Terra Nova to do communion every week as a reminder for what it is he's done for us and to whom it is we go for our rest. This is a picture of striving to keep putting ourselves in position to receive the rest that only he can give us. And then finally, as we walk away from the table today, as you leave church later, we go from this place as ambassadors on this mission to work for the rest of those around us in this world who are hurting and who are broken and who are in need of redemption. All of that is pictured in communion. And so let it be a reminder to us today of the rest that only Christ could secure for us, the rest that we need to strive for as his followers now, and the rest that we're called to work for on behalf of others. Let's pray.
Father, I, I lift up to you today our hearts. I pray you would do the work in them that only you can do. And there's a couple of people, Lord, and I fit into both of these categories at various times that come to mind as I pray today. I first pray for the one who's been striving to enter your rest on their own without you. No doubt they are tired and they are weary. And there's a matter of pride in that too. Lord, if anyone here today is in that position, let them believe the words of your son who said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Lord, I pray that you would break down the walls of belief that only you can provide the rest that is ultimately desired in each person's heart this morning. And then I pray for the professing Christian here today who needs a wake-up call to strive to enter that rest that you are holding out to them freely. Lord, your word says in Hebrews 4, today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Father, discipleship is so hard. Following you is so hard. But it's also good. It's good because you are good, Lord. So I pray that as we meditate on your word and take communion now, you would remind us of that truth this morning. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.